Hey there, I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse, managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures, and host of What It Takes. On this show, we talk to some of the best and brightest founders in climate tech, people who are dedicating their lives to building the infrastructure we need to decarbonize. But behind every founder with a big idea are scientists, engineers, and policymakers working hard to turn those big ideas into reality. And right now, a lot of them are tackling one of the biggest contributors to the climate crisis, carbon. Normally, we'd be bringing you an episode featuring an entrepreneur who's making our climate-positive future a reality. But today, we have something new for you. As a bonus, we're bringing you an episode of one of our favorite podcasts, The Big Switch. It's hosted by the amazing Dr. Melissa Lott, Director of Research at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. In this episode of The Big Switch, we learn how pervasive carbon is in our lives and how embedded carbon in particular hides inside our phones, our computers, our cars, and even our kitchen appliances. I hope you enjoy the show, and we'll be back with a new episode of What It Takes at the end of the month. Hey, Melissa. Hey, Alexandria. Um, I have no idea what we're about to do, by the way, so you're going to have to guide me through it. That's good. I don't want you to know. Last week, one of our producers, Alexandria, came to me with an unusual request. I had a little surprise for you, so I want. I went on. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do, Alexandria? What did you do? <laughs> Since I've been working on this show with you, every time I buy something new, every time I go to the grocery store, I feel like I have applied sort of some of your energy vision to <laughs> my own life. <laughs> and I start to get stressed because I'm like, you know, if every time I buy something, every time I throw it away, I'm like, there's so much carbon emissions in this stuff, probably. And I don't know where it comes from. What Alexandra is talking about is this thing that people say I do. And if you've heard previous episodes, you may have heard that I have this obsession for seeing the carbon emissions and the energy in the world around me. They say it's a bit like x-ray vision. And that's why I wanted your advice, because I want to go on a little mission together into an object and try and figure out where the carbon comes from in that object. So Alexandria hunted down something really special. The star of the hour. Oh, toaster oven. (laughs) Oh, oh no, the door fell off. It's definitely broken. (laughs) You got a good one. You got a good one. Thank you, toaster, for giving your life to science. (laughs) I don't think I've ever dissected an appliance before, I'm not going to lie. You're in for a treat. It's super fun. Alexandria and I literally dissected this poor toaster, and the goal was to find the carbon hidden inside. Whoa! Now we're seeing the guts. Look at this. In this episode, we're talking about the invisible carbon emissions that are embedded in everything around us. We'll take you on a journey inside one toaster oven to try and answer the seemingly simple question of, where are they? This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. To slow climate change, we need to transform our buildings, homes, cars, and the economy as quickly as possible. But how do we do it right? I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, and I study the technologies and systems that power our world.
From the looks of it, I think, Alexandria, you have the four-slice Black & Decker toaster oven. That is what I found. Yeah. All right. Should I start screwing them out? Absolutely. That's the funnest part. (laughs) Um, So let's start taking it apart. And if you can just lay out maybe in front of you all the different pieces as you take it apart. So we're going to want to think about how many screws are there and what types of metal might there be and what types of rubber or plastics might there be. So just lay it all out in front of you as you start to take it apart. All right. Toast is done. Toast is done. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Okay, so now we've basically just got left the body of the toaster oven with everything. Like, the case has been taken off, so we have, like, the innards, the guts of this poor toaster oven are now exposed. Okay, so picture this. Laid out in front of us on the carpet, parts of the toaster, the glass, the metal screws, little bits of plastic, wires. And Alexandria and I started thinking about the carbon emissions that were in every single piece and how many carbon emissions were in this toaster. Yeah, so the total emissions in what you're holding in your hands right now really depends on where it was made a lot. And that is because all the energy that went into pulling the different ores out of the earth, transporting them to a factory, then melting them into the thing you actually want. So a screw, uh, creating that glass door, creating those metal walls and that metal uh, grate where you toast your toast on it. Also the heating elements that actually do the toasting. All that was created using a lot of energy. And depending on how much of that energy came from fossil fuels will determine how much carbon is embedded in your toaster. Embedded. What does that mean? Embedded. So when you think about the the different things that were used to make your toaster, there's carbon emissions associated with that. And so we can talk about the carbon emissions from a power plant, or we can talk about the carbon emissions from a truck. But in the case of your toaster, we can think about all those emissions as being required to make your toaster. So it's not that the CO2 is actually physically inside the metal, but it had to be used to create that metal. So we call it embedded or embodied carbon. So it's almost like a carbon price tag you can put on it. Yeah. Huh, interesting. You can. After taking apart this toaster oven, I was left wondering, like, how exactly do we get the carbon emissions out of the industries that produce all the parts of that toaster? What's it going to take to produce net zero steel and glass and plastic so that one day I can, you know, toast my toast in a toaster oven with no embedded carbon emissions? So I called up someone who might know. Roughly a third of, of all our emissions is dedicated to making all the stuff around us. This is Dr. Chris Bataille, and he's a researcher at IDRI, which in English stands for the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations. He's also one of the lead authors of the big international climate change report that comes out every year from the IPCC. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it's a big deal. Chris is the lead author of the industry section of the report, and he's spent years figuring out what it's going to take to scrub all the carbon emissions out of our heavy industries. That's the trillion, million dollar, trillion dollar question. So I spoke to Chris about what it's going to take to decarbonize these essential industries and Alexandria's toaster oven. When I look at that toaster, can you break down how I could get the carbon out of the metal and the plastic and the glass that's in my toaster? How do I get the carbon out? The material in your toaster, your your toaster probably cost you you know, somewhere between $25 and $50, 200 if it's some high-end Bosch Pretty thing. much. No, <laughs> right? no. The actual materials were only a few dollars, right? So green, ver, greener versions of those materials will, will, would only add another couple of dollars, even if they were double the cost, right? So, you know, 
somewhere in the, in the chain, whether it's government specifying it or labeling on it, you want to buy things that are made out of green steel, plastics, uh, what have you, right? And that that's a cooperative thing between consumers and, and manufacturers. The second thing is we tend to buy things that we use for five years and then throw away. And then when, they th- when we throw them away, they end up in the landfill and they usually end up burnt and they just end up as carbon in the atmosphere. And all that, all that really good metal in there often gets degraded and not recycled properly. We need to change that paradigm. So if we talk about industrial emissions and just at a really high level, what are the big industries that we should know about before we even start talking about decarbonizing? What are the big industries we should know about? How that breaks down is the number one bucket is steel, is making steel, iron and steel products. Um, you know, that's, it holds up all the structures around us, the vehicles we're in, although we're moving to aluminum to a certain extent. Uh, and that's somewhere between seven and 10%, depending on which boundaries you use of all emissions. Then there's, then there's cement, which is about 6%. Then you get down into chemicals and they vary at sort of two to 4%, depending on which one. Now, there's, there's a whole bunch of tail industries there, but there's this whole other manufacturing group that's about 10% of emissions. And that's basically, it's all the light manufacturing and all the small, medium enterprises that we, that we see in the economy. But number one, steel, cement, chemicals, tail, tail, tail industries, and other manufacturing. Food, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, all that good stuff. So we use steel and cement and chemicals and everything. They're everywhere. What are kind of the three biggest levers that we could pull to get emissions down and like steel and cement and all these all these big parts of industry? The first biggest lever is what we call material efficiency. We use too much steel and cement and concrete because they're cheap and they're effective. And engineers try to make things safe and durable. And because of that, they tend to use too much of this stuff, which is really cheap. With modern computing technology, we can design buildings and infrastructure bridges and what have you such that we can minimize the amount of concrete and cement used and and cement and only use the steel and cement where it's really needed. Now, once you've done that, then you're into energy efficiency, substituting materials where you can, changing the fundamental processes, electrification, and its close relative, the use of hydrogen. So let's revisit our toaster for a moment. The heating element is popping out. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yeah. You got, does it have like little okay, things on the sides so it can pop out? It's a spring. Is that a slinky? It's it sounds a, like a slinky. It's a slinky. Oh my gosh, your heating element's a slinky. Nice. So it's a metal heating element. Ooh. Okay, now we are really starting to take this bad boy apart. Nicely done. All the pieces that we had in front of us, the metal case, the heating element, the grate that you put your toast on, the glass door, they were once just raw material. I'm talking bits of ore and sand and even fossil fuels themselves that had to be processed into the glass and the metal and the plastic. So basically, all of the raw materials and all of the stuff that goes into making this toaster oven expended some amount of carbon emissions. And those carbon emissions were involved and turning those raw materials, iron, glass, whatever, into this thing that I'm holding now. This thing that can toast your toast. And so as we go to net zero, we have to think about each one of those steps, right? So when we think about how do I decarbonize 
my household, all the things in it. You have to think about where each one of those components came from, how they were created, how they were put together, and how they got to you. That got me thinking, what does a net zero toaster look like? I asked Chris what it would take to make zero carbon versions of steel and plastic and glass. So in a net zero world, how different is the steel on my toaster? There's no difference at all. The steel looks the same. How different is the stuff behind my steel, how it was made? Fundamental. It's fundamentally different. It's fundamentally the, the different. Product, the, the factories are fundamentally different. This is why we, we, the 2020s are a gift. They're a gift to re-communicate, to, to, to take all these technologies we know about, make them full size, do all the work mm-hmm. that it takes to do that, and mandate that all new factories for steel are these new ultra-clean facilities. We have to use the gift of the 2020s so that by the time we get to 2050, all the old dirtier steel plants have retired out. So what about the glass that's in the door on my, and it's a toaster oven, I should have said, it's a toaster oven, so it's got a glass door. Mm -hmm. How do we make that glass today? And what does net zero glass look like? How different is it? Yeah, uh, net zero glass is gonna be the same as glass it is today. It's how how it's made. Um, Glass is basically silicon dioxide, which is sand, and you were melting it and and you're basically melting it and changing how it's formed. So suddenly what was a pile of sand is now a a thin, it's a thin, thin see-through piece of material that you put in your windows and in your toaster. And it's the heat, where that heat comes from is is the key thing. For melting the sand to make it into glass. Yes. Yeah. We keep hearing about heat in industry and how important heat is. How big of a deal is heat when it comes to getting to net zero industry? Heat's a really big deal. It's at least half. It's at least half the challenge. We're, we're, it's going to be less of a problem with steel. It's, it's a it's a significant problem with cement. It's chemicals. It's about forty percent of the problem. And a lot of and doing making things like brick and glass. It's all the problem, right? Now the beauty is that we you know today in North America it mostly comes from natural gas. Uh, unfortunately, in a lot of the world it comes from coal. Um, the trick is we need to get to a point where that primary heat is coming from things like hydrogen coming directly from electricity. And we're directly heating things. Now, that electricity and hydrogen is quite expensive today, but we can be much more efficient in how we use it. So you're talking about heat. And I mean, how hot are we talking about? Because with my toaster oven, according to the Internet, the uh, temperature range in the toaster needs to be between 134 degrees Celsius and 150 degrees Celsius. How much hotter are we talking about when you talk about heat and industry? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not a little yeah, bit hotter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a lot. It's, it's yeah, yeah it's, okay. it's a little beyond toasters. <laughs> yeah, chemicals is yeah, four hundred, eight hundred thousand C. Uh, metals are typically fifteen, more than fifteen, fifteen hundred C. Awesome, that's pretty hot. Um, that's yes. really, really hot. Okay, I don't want to forget about plastic because when Alexandria and I took apart the toaster oven. There was a lot of metal, there was glass, and then there was just all this plastic mixed in there at different parts. So how how is plastic made today and how different will it look with green plastic, net zero plastic in a net zero world? 
Well, the interesting thing is plastic is plastic. It's, there are about seven major types. Um, some of it's more or less recyclable than the others. What, coming back to the design question, you want to focus, you almost need to mandate design that only uses recyclable path plastic and that the toaster can come apart and it's very clearly marked with those little triangles that you can pull it out and it goes into the right bin for, for that type of plastic. Now, Making making plastics is it's a bit of, it, it's a chemical transformation process. So it goes through heat transformations, it goes through catalytic transformations to make make what they want, and they press out what you need. Now, often we're often wasteful wasteful with this stuff. You know, we could make just as much as we need, and in the processing, we can be a lot more selective. Instead of using heat, we can use filters. Uh, we can use what's called electrocatal. A catalysis, where we directly use electricity and catalysts to mix and match carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen molecules, in, molecules into exactly what we want. So a chemical plant of the future likely is going to be more electrically driven, electrocatalytically driven, and the feedstocks coming in won't be fossil fuel feedstocks. They'll typically, you know, initially some recycling of fossil fuel feedstocks, but you'll mainly it'll be bio, it'll be air capture, it'll be it pulled from other sources that when, if that stuff ends up in the atmosphere, it's not net adding to the CO2 up there. Just really quickly, I want to get an idea of timescale with industry. So when we think about the next decade being critical, can you just um, maybe say something really brief about like, how long does a steel plant and the equipment in it actually live? Like how long does it actually operate before it's replaced? The reason I'm focusing so much on the 2030 mark is that 20 years across all industry is the usual, what we call the retrofit and renovation cycle, right? Okay. So a steel plant can last hundreds of years, or not hundreds, but like 100 years, and a cement plant. and. But every 20 years or so, stuff becomes wears out, becomes mm -hmm. obsolescent, needs to be relined. The in, remember, we were talking about 1,500 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Well, the inside of a lot of these things has this brick lining or masonry lining that wears out. It has to be replaced. And the cost of replacing that is almost the cost of a new plant. That is the moment that we have to catch and put in the zero emissions option. We have to break apart. You know, you might have these cement plants, steel plants, glass plants may all be in the same place they are today, but we have to be get in there and swap out those critical GHG intense components. And we have to be doing this by the early, we have to have mastered this by the early 2030s. So it seems like across all industry, you talk about how we have these critical decisions to make. Actually, not every 100 years, which is how long a steel plant could last, but actually every 20 years, we're making a big decision that costs a lot of money. So if we want to hit net zero on the timelines we need to to protect health, to protect the environment, 20 years, does that mean in 20 years we'll, we're going to have made the decisions across all these plants and that we might be on a path to net zero? Is that where we're headed? Yes, now, before you can make that opportunistic decision, a whole supply chain has, has to have built up to provide that equipment, right? Currently, there are only two companies globally that can build the equipment necessary for making near zero emission steel plants. We need 15 of these companies, or they need to grow 15 times in size at the very least. So it's like we've got 10 years to master the technologies, 10 years to build up the supply chain, train enough engineers and construction workers, build the factories necessary to pump these things out as they're, as they're needed, as stuff wears out. And that applies across heavy industry. 
So when we think about, it's interesting, when I hear you talk about the next decade to prove out technologies, the next decade after that, to get all the supply chains where we need them so that when a, when a facility, when a plant, when a part of industry is being rebuilt, we have the tech we need, that's a career. That is a generation's career right there. Exactly. That actually makes me really optimistic, I will say, because you can imagine a whole host of people saying, this is the problem we're going to solve and I'm going to dedicate my career. And the next decade, I'm going to help build this piece, the decade after that, build this piece, and that, and the 20 years after that, implement it all. And that's my roadmap. Like, I, I'm very excited by this when I hear you lay it out. Yeah, it's it's a career and it's a business model. If someone wants to make a living doing that, this is this is the this is a path that's open for for starting a business, for planning a career, what have you. I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I really did not think that we were gonna be able to break this all the way down when I started. So, can you actually figure out like the amount of carbon something has in it by doing a more professional version of this? You can estimate it. It's really hard if you're not in the company that makes it. And even then, it's challenging. But yeah, you can get close because you can break down how much plastic, how much rubber, how much metal, and where did those things probably come from? So hopefully someday soon, the choices we make around policy and technology will bring all of our industries to net zero. But in the meantime, honestly, it's tough to figure out how much carbon is in the stuff we buy. It's really complicated. And we recognize that most people just aren't going to sit down and dissect their appliances to try to figure out what the environmental impact is. It's hard because as we talked about, a lot of these emissions are basically invisible. Unless you're like me and you have a Dr. Melissa Lott to call up and talk (laughs) through your issues with, then, which most people don't, then it's pretty hard to know when you're purchasing something Even the concept to visualize embedded carbon in something is hard if you aren't familiar with the concept like me. And then furthermore, to know exactly how much embedded carbon there is is even harder. And information is power. That's how we can make choices, right? Someday, someday soon, we could have a label that just tells you about this is how much carbon it took to produce this thing you're holding, and this is how much carbon you'll emit when you use it. So as much fun as it is taking apart a toaster oven, one of the great things about these programs where we actually have labeling is that you wouldn't actually have to take apart your toaster oven to understand how much carbon it took to make it and how much carbon it will take to operate it. So that's something I'm looking forward to is having labels. Um, Not that it's not fun taking apart appliances, because it is. Just so that we don't have to. Yes, you have a choice. There's such a strong toaster oven juice smell in this room right now. Oh, don't smell it. Don't smell it. Oh, God. Open a window. What are you doing? And that's our show. Next up on The Big Switch, bridges, buildings, and sidewalks. We're talking about concrete. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Alexandria Herr. Theme music, mixing, and scoring by Sean Marquand. And a special thanks to our Columbia team, Kirsten Smith, Q. Lee, Liz Smith, and Natalie Volk. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and this is The Big Switch. 